0: Good evening, welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ for our midweek Bible study. Uh, And again, I apologize, Um, several weeks here we're gonna have pre-recorded lessons and uh, I'm up here just kind of hitting them all back to back, getting them recorded and it is hot and our building is hot and I'm sweating so I apologize for my appearance. Uh, You can find the audio only of these lessons (laughs) if that's better for you. Uh, You know, if you're trying to have dinner or something and watching a man disintegrate in front of you is not... uh, palatable Uh, but i'm glad you're here and we are in the midst of a wonderful study on how we got our bible how did we get the 66 books in our canon how were they written how were they preserved and how do we trust ultimately that's the question how do we trust what we have in in these books and in this this thing we call a bible last week we talked a little bit about the form formation of the new testament how those writings took place why they took place and how they were preserved through manuscripting down through the years. And it really wasn't very long between the writing of those books and to the time when they were begin to be codified as a canon. That's the term we use to refer to the collection of books that we consider to be holy scriptures. In uh, the Christian Bible, or the, the most Protestant Bibles, well, I shouldn't say that, all Christian Bibles agree upon 66 books. There are 66 books that we say these are the Holy Scriptures. Uh, now, certain other Christian faith traditions have more. Uh, certain Orthodox churches, uh, the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, they have more than that. They have a section we call the Apocrypha, and that's because we're, we're not too sure on some of them, but they've been included. We'll get to that all shortly. But last week we talked about the beginnings of how these things are preserved. Now, where are we with the Old Testament? Let's go back and talk about the Old Testament. We talked about how some of that was written, how it was edited, aggregated, preserved, on down through the centuries, and manuscripted, and those manuscripts helped it to survive. We have the forming of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and then we have the Jews returning to a Hebrew and Aramaic translation of of their holy scriptures. Now, by the time we reach about 300 A.D., We've got an Old Testament that's pretty well locked in. The Hebrew Hebrew Bible, the the Jewish Holy Scriptures, exists now uh, and continues to be modified and revised and improved through the examination of manuscripts. But it's pretty well there. It's pretty well locked in. The New Testament now hasn't been formed officially yet. We don't really have anything to to call it that. Those phrases come into usage later. But now we're going to talk about kind of how these books get agreed upon, and how we end up with them and why there's some differences amongst amongst these books so let's talk about it because you've probably seen the history channel you've probably which used to actually i remember i'm old enough to remember when he actually used to have programs about history and not just shows about like pawn shops and aliens which is not history um, you might have seen these specials on there the lost books of the bible the hidden books of the bible um and and it kind of promotes an idea that there's a couple of myths about our our canon our 66 books there's two myths that exist one is that there was some secret meeting some shady backroom uh deal that was made and, and it was struck amongst a bunch of religious elite people and they took out the things that they didn't like and they left in the things that they did like and all these things that they left out boy they would they would destroy the church if they were if they were ever discovered and that's what those history channel shows are about And the and remember about oh 15 years ago when the hottest book in the world was the da vinci code and it was all about you know um the secret life of jesus and his his, his children his child that he bore and all this stuff and it, so there's this one myth that there were some things that were kept out that were pushed aside because they They would have destroyed the church and destroyed christianity if they saw the light of day that's not true it's not history confirms that that was not the process by which things are removed from the bible we have a pretty clear uh um, map that we can follow to see how things were kept in and how things were removed and why and a lot of those things that people say are lost books of the bible they're not lost we have them they're just not included because they're bogus. (laughs) There's most scholars don't accept these books as being uh, authoritative. And so they're not in there. Now, the other myth is that one day the the heavens opened and a leather bound uh, book fell from the heavens with 66 little books in it. And that's what we've got. And this is all that's ever been and all that ever will be. That also is not true. Uh, this took a long time to get to this and it's pretty it's pretty new the 66 book canon is very young for a lot of reasons we'll talk about that but when we move from the intertestamental period and the time of the new testament writings in the first century into the second third and fourth centuries we see that these books and these letters are being written and they're being passed around they're being carried and read and shared and as this happens, and remember, they're being recopied. We, we have manuscripts, copies of copies of copies. As they're copied and passed around, we see some changes begin to creep in. Changes in spelling, changes in syntax. Uh, and, uh, and that was concerning to some people as those changes began to be noticed. Um, we'll talk a little bit in the next uh, edition about, about some of the things that happened around this time that led to the first discussions about what's scripture and what's not. But, but we'll, we'll kind of hit some of that along the way. We're gonna take a couple weeks to deal with how we get to 66 books. In 1313, I think I might've said last week 311, but I uh, said 13, 313. I said 311 last week. It's 313. I was off by a couple years. 313, Constantine issues the Edict of Milan. That makes Christianity the official religion of the empire Um, and it was an effort to unite the empire it wasn't necessarily some uh, change of heart or some great conversion of constantine Uh, it it was really an effort to consolidate political power Um, again i apologize for sweating and fogging my glasses i'm trying to make it here Um, but it was an effort to unite and consolidate power in the empire but it brought about some radical changes to the church that had not been there to that point Christianity uh, began to look very, very different because now uh, we no longer have uh, just a church operating uh, and trying to survive in a state, but now the church is becoming a part of the state. And so you begin to see the bureaucracy that develops. And when you look at at things like the Catholic Church, and this isn't meant as any sort of criticism necessarily, but it is historical, uh, how we have this bureaucracy or this hierarchy that's in the catholic church and we begin to see popes and we see the popes elevated up near the emperor so you have the emperor uh the ruler of the land and then the pope is right there and then you have bishops and cardinals and governors and it's all mixed in together we begin to see that those radical changes in that bureaucracy develop and now constantine begins calling a series of councils to form And Meet and come to an agreement on some of these changes and discrepancies that are arising in scripture Was it because Constantine was super concerned with getting down to the truth and getting it right? No, (laughs) he didn't care what they came what they what they decided he cared that they had an agreement Remember the purpose of making Christianity the state religion was to consolidate power and unite an empire and to unite them they had to agree So he would bring the bishops in, they would have a council, they'd have a meeting, and they could not leave until they came to an agreement on this is what the Bible says and this is what it means. This is where we start getting some doctrines develop, some that over time we have changed our positions on, some that caused problems down the road, and some that have even become the bedrock foundation of how we see certain things in Scripture. Uh, long-held beliefs and traditions and doctrines that we've later gone back and looked at and said, I don't know if that's really right. Uh, Because their goal was not to get the right conclusion, it was to get a united conclusion. But we have things like the Council of Nicaea, uh, we have various other meetings and councils in different places, and they're dealing with a whole lot of things. Uh, I I won't go into it, but the, the Nicaea, is very interesting and fascinating story because you have two big players there one of them is a guy named arius and they're discussing um the trinity and the holy spirit and its place in all of that and whether jesus was created by god or whether he always exists existed um a whole lot of really interesting arguments that take place there but we won't get into it the point we want to get to is a guy named augustine augustine was concerned or augustine um uh uh, he was concerned by these changes and these discrepancies and uh this is in the time of pope damascus and pope damascus is also concerned and they want to take a good hard look at their scripture and determine if uh what they have is correct and so they call upon the greatest scholar of their time a man who had mastered many many languages who had studied under great philosophers who had uh uh, studied and received degrees in rhetoric and debate um, and, and was considered one of the, the smartest and most capable scholars of their time. He has a very, very long, complicated name, but thankfully he goes by Jerome, <laughs> so we can say it. Uh, so he calls on Jerome, Pope Damascus does, and he asks Jerome to retranslate. Uh, originally, he just wanted the Gospels, but Jerome does the whole thing, the entire Bible, and retranslate uh, these scriptures that are now in Greek, and uh, put them into a more common language form—the uh, common language of the time. Because remember, languages change. What for by the common people was Latin, and so Jerome translates the the Bible into Latin and produces what we call the Vulgate. The Latin, vulgate. Vulgate comes from the word vulgar, or we get the word vulgar from the same root. Uh, and we think that means dirty or something. Uh, vulgar uh, in, in the etymology of the time was, it was the common tongue. the common. It was how common people spoke. And so it takes the Bible now to another step out of uh, the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and now into the common language of Latin, uh, allowing more people to... Uh, or or it to be in a way that more people could understand. And even still, it represents the official uh, translation used by the Roman Catholic Church. They use a Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate. It is is that translation which is considered acceptable by the Catholic Church, and that's where it comes from. Uh, All along this time, in the 300s A.D., um, or, or prior to 300 A.D., you have these letters, you have these books, you have what will become the New Testament that's being carried around, copied, passed along. Do we have all of it? No, no. There were lots of things written that we don't have. Uh, Paul wrote probably three letters to Corinth because he references in, you know, remember the very first week of this study, I listed a lot of books and things that we don't have, but they're referenced in scripture. Yeah. Yeah. So there might have been three letters to Thessalonica, probably a couple letters to Ephesus, maybe three to the uh, Corinthians, probably others he wrote that we've just never found and and don't know about. Many other gospels were written, uh, the Gospel of Thomas um, and and Barnabas. Uh, There's other writers, other writings, other things. They're being passed around. They're being handed off. They're being shared. Remember, I ended last week by talking about the fact that Rome was going to become uh, antagonistic to Christianity after the time of Constantine. And now it becomes illegal to have scripture, Christian scripture in your possession. That leads them to ask a very important question: what's scripture? What do we consider to be scripture at this point? We have all these letters and all these stories and all these gospels and 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 what of it is scripture? we need to sit down and decide what is our scripture. That's how they're going to start beginning to form the New Testament. Uh, When we talk about what scripture the early church had, it's kind of a complicated thing. And when we talk about what their Bible looked like, it also remains pretty complicated because these letters and these writings are scattered in various places. There are some things that certain groups in certain places had that others didn't because that's where they were written, copied, and and you know, disseminate it. No one group had all of the now 66 books of our current Bible until about 300 AD. No one group possessed all of it. And so now they begin to gather it and put it into one place. Now, here's something interesting about that. We take very seriously our scripture. We take very seriously our 66 books, our canon, our, the word of God, we call it. And then we think that we couldn't survive, the church couldn't survive, we didn't have this. This is how we get to heaven. Well, like I said last week, Jesus is how we get to heaven. These scriptures point us to Jesus, right? They're very useful, very encouraging, and very instructive. I I don't deny the importance of our scripture, but our scripture hasn't always looked like this. And we have to remember that there, there was a long period of time, about 300 years Uh, just less than 300 years in the early church where they didn't have all of them even accessible, much less in a collection, much less easily attainable, much less easily readable. No one group even possessed what would become these 66 books until 300 years after the time of Christ. And yet the church survived, even thrived. Isn't that something? Why? Because they had their focus on the right thing. They were focused on learning the story and telling the story. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. It's very very sad that this man shows up one time in Scripture and that's how he's going to be known the rest of his days. Uh, But the Ethiopian eunuch, what did he have? He had the book of Isaiah. He had an Old Testament prophecy. And he's reading it. And with the help of Philip comes to understand it and accept Jesus and is baptized and is saved. That's all he had. And it was enough. It was enough. Did the for early church know everything that we know? Maybe not. Did they have everything we have? Probably not. Did they know enough? Yeah. Did they know enough that God needed them to know at that time? Yeah. Yeah. God's going to take care of us. He's going to make sure we have what we need. He's going to make sure that we can know our story and tell our story. That's how it was with the Ethiopian eunuch. That's how it was with the early church. That's how it's going to be with us. And we need to understand that this didn't just fall out of the sky the way it is. It's pretty new. 300 A.D., we have the first time that one single group of people possesses all of the books that will eventually become our accepted canon. It's only recently, by the way, that we got a Bible, Protestant Christian Bible, with just 66 books. I love, uh, there's, there's segments of the Christian world that are very, very adamant about what version we use, of, the, and we'll talk some about versions in later, later lessons, but I, ha- I use a New American Standard. That's kind of my go-to. I like the New American Standard version of, of the Bible. Other people like NIV. It's certainly the most popular uh and and others prefer english standard what have you but there's a segment of christianity that loves the king james to the point that they think it's the only acceptable translation and the reasons for that are very similar to the reasons why we do a lot of the things we do usually in reaction to something that we're leaving protestants went really hard one direction to get away from the catholics because they didn't want to look like catholics Before that, Christians went really hard one way to get away from looking like Jews because we didn't want to be like the Jews. And as the Protestant movements have split and, and divided over time, they run to the opposite end of the spectrum to get away so that no one confuses them with what they're leaving. We have a history of division and splitting that's very reactionary. And our practices and our traditions that become our doctrines often are the result of fleeing some other doctrine Uh, as a reaction to it, and one of those reactions has been to adopt, in some circles, King James only. All right, now get ready to have your mind blown a little bit, because these people that are King James only, I would like to ask them, and this is not to be an insult, it's just to point this out, and if you're King James only, uh, you're my brother, okay, you're my sister, I consider you a Christian, but I do want you to think critically. Open your King James Bible, how many books does it have in it? probably 66. Are you aware that the original King James Bible had a lot more? So which King James Bible is the only one that you'll use? Because if it was written before about 1885, it's got like 80 books in it. We cut some out. We had a group of people get together and they cut some out. And we'll talk about that. See, we had these, uh, the, uh, it really is remarkably recent that it became a 66 book canon or 66 book Bible. Now, did they cut some things out? Yeah. The Apocrypha has pretty well been removed from Protestant Bibles, but there were also some numbering changes. That was a big part of it. A big part of the, the change has been the numbering uh, because in Jewish Bibles, we talked about uh, Ezra's, uh, the, book of Ezra, the books of Ezra's, uh, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. They make that one book. And then there's a couple of other books of Ezra that are actually four books that they count as two books. But if you go to a Catholic Bible, they have Ezra and Nehemiah, and then one other book of Ezra's. And in the Protestant Bible, we just have Ezra and Nehemiah, right? You see, we've cut these things up differently in different translations. So sometimes you're going to find a Bible that has more books or less books than what you're used to, all the same materials in there. That's true of the Old Testament. Our Old Testament is exactly the same as the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Not got the same number of books because they count their books differently. Kings, Samuel, each one book. Uh, We have them as four. We just number them differently. We have all the same words, all the same material, just a different numbering of our books. So that accounts for a lot of changes you've seen over the last several hundred years with the Bible. And if you ever find a Bible in an old bookstore or an antique shop and you open it up and you go, wait a minute, where are all these books coming from? It's a lot of the same material. It's just been divided up differently. So some debate arose about what would be considered scripture. Rome persecuting the Christians, making it illegal to possess scripture. It became important to identify what was scripture why because no one wants to die for something that's not scriptural If it's not scripture, that's not a hill. They want to die on and so they have to know What are you willing to die for and so on that basis some of these books were rejected? There are a lot of books that were considered important by the early church, but not considered scripture We have those still today think of C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity Or maybe if your life has been touched by something like a a Max Lucado or, or someone like that, Uh, I know there's one uh, book that I read when I was younger, "Undenominational Christianity" by J. N. Armstrong. Uh, I, I, that and "Mere Christianity" are two books I consider to be incredibly important, very important in my own spiritual development. They're not scripture in the same way, the early church identified there were some books that were highly important for them, but they weren't scripture. And they asked some questions. Questions like, was it written by a prophet? Was it written by someone who was speaking on behalf of God, who shows the clear authority of the message? They asked if it fit with the broader narrative. There were books that were outliers that didn't seem to fit, so they were set aside. Does it have the power of the story does it possess the power of this story does it further the kingdom does it preserve the church what is the history of the book and how did we get it they had to go back and find out where it came from to see if it was fit to be a part of what they would accept and consider their scripture there were many books even in the Old Testament uh, that were rejected or, or desired to be rejected books like Esther you read the book of esther there is not one mention of god in the entire book of esther not a lot of the jews when they were putting together their masoretic text and their hebrew bible wanted to kick it out it, they kept it song of solomon they thought song of solomon it's hard to understand a little too dirty uh, they wanted to get rid of it but they kept it in ezekiel my goodness ezekiel is like it, it, i mean it's like it's like a, a if if a, it's almost like uh Beatles songs that <laughs> that sound like they were altered when they were being written and they likely were ezekiel's kind of that way it comes out of nowhere and it's a little weird but they kept it in christians ask the question does what we have preserve the church and on that basis and many other bases like the historical and uh, literary and, and and linguistic history They chose what books would be considered their books 367 a.d is the year it is the first known date where a man named athanasius gave us the list of these 66 books that's the first time we have the list of what would become our 66 books athanasius says these are the ones we think matter these are the ones worth dying for These are the ones that tell our story and preserve our story. And Athanasius understood, as we understand, the words that Jesus spoke when he said, as he prepared to ascend, that all authority has been given to me. He didn't say all authority has been given to me and a bunch of books and letters you're going to write later. The authority comes from Christ. The Bible is not God. God is God. Jesus is his son. The Bible points us to his son. But Athanasius said these 66 books are what would become our 66 books. They're what matter. They tell our story. They preserve our story. Polycarp and Justin the Martyr in the 100s were some of the first people who had some of those books and used the term to refer to them as scripture, as holy. 393 A.D. is when we finally codify and kind of lock down the 27 new testament books and while there are other faith traditions and denominations that accept more than that uh, or, or a different organizing of them there has been very little discussion or dispute in the time since 393 a.d that those 27 belong that they are right so i want you to think about this as as others were taken out and others were were put in over time. Think about where we started and where we are, because we're getting near the end of the hard part of this. We started with people passing down oral tradition, passing down stories, and then writing them down, and then passing them along, recopying them, editing them, adding to them, putting them together, fitting stories, preserving a story, And documents along the way are getting lost and rediscovered and lost again and put back together in different forms. We have them translated into more modern languages. We have them translated back to the ancient languages. We have people writing and sharing and spreading news and messages and encouragement through the churches in the early first century and in the the hundreds of years following. And then we have Christians come to a point where they begin to ask, what's our story? And out of all of that that's been written and preserved and copied and recopied, they're able to find what becomes 66 books to put together and say, this is our story. This right here has been on an unbelievable and incredible journey to go from a nomadic desert tribe thousands of years ago through all the wars through the oppression, through the captivity, through the exile, through all the battles and all the challenges to reach our hands today. And by the way, through the translations and through the editions of the stories of Christ and the early church and through all the arguments and the contention about what belonged and what didn't, we got it down to this. We hold it in our hand, ancient text, an ancient story, but a relevant story for today that tells us how to find Christ. It points us in the direction of the Son of God. And through that, we are saved. It's a beautiful story. But it's a fairly recent story. And it is a story that continues to evolve. We shouldn't confuse ourselves into think that this is it. The story's still being written. And a thousand years from now, this may look different because it's certainly changed even in just the last couple hundred in the way we've organized it and the way we've put it together. Next week, we're going to talk about a little bit more about how this was formed and how we get this canon and some of the things that went on in the formation of the canon. And then we'll get into some, some stories about how we've continued to look back and revise and how the printed canon has evolved through the printing press and through King James. We'll talk about all of that to get to where we are today but I want you to understand that in when we ask the question how do we know that this is true how do we know that this is right please understand we have manuscripts and the people that wrote those manuscripts had other manuscripts and there is a constant history and evidence of the history that they were constantly reaching back to find the words and see that they were right and there's evidence that they got it right and the oldest things that we have in existence we can look at and say We've got the words. We have the words. We have them right. We know the story. And what we do in determining whether or not we've got it right is we look at all those manuscripts and we see where they disagree and where they do agree, and we look for the things that are the outliers that don't seem to fit. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, it's the key is those manuscripts and the constant seeking after those manuscripts to make sure that we've got it right and i'm going to tell you a story about that in a couple weeks that is just awesome it needs to be a movie Um, it's certainly one i would watch so stay tuned for that we'll talk a little bit more about how the canon is being formed in those early days next time and we look forward to seeing you then